Hello and welcome to the Wingnet Travel Podcast with me, James Hammond. Personally, I have been to 50 countries. I've met so many people in my travels that I want to bring them on this podcast and get their story on record. I have plenty of tips and stories to share with you as well. Are you a backpacker or a traveller or gap year student or simply someone who loves to travel? Then this is the podcast for you. Throughout the weeks and months, you'll get many guests and solo episodes where I try to cover all range of subjects within travel. This is a casual and informative travel podcast to inspire you to travel in the future. Do you fancy some bonus content with this episode? Then fear not. If you start to my Patreon today, by going on to www.patreon.com forward slash travel podcast, then you'll find these extra features every week for Monday and Friday's episode. One bonus episode every month, some ad-free content, some early access to episodes, the exclusive added travel must-have feature on every episode, patron shout-out, some ad hoc bonus episodes, you'll get a copy of my digital travel planner which is available on Etsy and you'll get my monthly Winging It Travel podcast magazine. If this takes your fancy, you can sign up for £4, $7.50 Canadian, $6 US a month and I really thank you for supporting the podcast. Hope you enjoy the podcast, thanks for listening and supporting this and I'll see you soon. Cheers James. Let's get into the episode. So hello and welcome to this week's episode and I'm joined by award-winning author and writer Peter Fines. Peter is a well-renowned author in the travel sphere, and we're here today to talk about his new book, A Thing of Beauty, Travels in Mythical and Modern Greece. Pete travelled to Greece in 2021 to help write this book and also visit the places which are mentioned in Greek mythology. So I'm really keen to get your thoughts on his book and also Greece as a whole. I'm hoping to delve in some personal travel too. So Peter, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Very well. Nice to meet you. Thank you. And you too. And where are you based? Just tell listeners where you're based right minute. Uh, right now, I'm in South London, somewhere on the northern edge of Balham. And that's on the Black Line? It's on the Northern, northern Line. line. Yeah. It's uh, it's about a um, couple of miles south of the River Thames, somewhere yeah. in the middle, south mm-hmm. of Battersea Park, near Wandsworth Common, Clapham Common, surrounded by greenery. That's what you uh, need, isn't and it? And noise on the flight <laughs> path. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. So, and noise. Yeah, that, yeah, yes, that does sound London up. <laughs> yeah. Personal history here. Where did you grow up in the UK? I grew up uh, first off in East Sussex, which is southeast of London, and then in Kent. So we moved a massive 17 miles <laughs> eastwards. Um, so until I was an early teen, I was in Sussex. But both times were kind of on the Kent-Sussex borders. It was countryside, but village, village, classic English village life, really. Well, Kent is known as the Garden of UK, right? It's the Garden of England. England. Oh, not, not UK. Not the UK. I don't know why Crikey. not. Right? What's happening in Scotland? Just to mean <laughs> that it's only the Garden of England, but it's known as the Garden of England. It is beautiful. It used to be where all the cherries grew, were grown. And uh, also the hops. There's loads of hop fields. Oh, yeah. here. So it's a beautiful place. Nice villages, uh, but, you know, growing fast. Yeah. Hops is pretty popular, really. They, they love like their hoppy beer. I'm not a fan, yeah. actually. Yeah, right. believe it or not. So I, I stick to the ten to like the basic lager, really. But here they love the the different types of hops. It's quite popular in Vancouver. Well, you should send them all to Kent. <laughs> yeah, they, see the, they the, love the it. Yeah, fields of Kent. <laughs> yeah. See what's happening there. Uh, but microbreweries are the newest thing, aren't they? So you, you know, in Kent there's quite a few, but I imagine there's loads where you are. Yeah, Portland, I think, was the maybe the start, especially on the west coast. Anyway, was the mm. start of it. If you go to Portland, if you ever visit, I don't know if you have their yeah. whole. CBD, unlike most American cities where it's like big buildings and skyscrapers, they've got no big buildings, but there's loads and loads of breweries like in each block. So you can Amazing. just walk around doing a little brewery tour in the middle of Portland. It's quite an interesting city. 
Yeah, great. Well, I'll that to my long list of places okay. I must visit. Yeah, long list. It gets bigger every week, I think, every time I interview someone. Bloody hell. Okay, first off, what made you want to become a writer or author? I don't know which way around you would say, but I guess writer is what you think of first, right? Yes, I think it was always on my mind. I think with a lot of people, you know, we all fantasise about being writers. And so growing up, I thought uh, that was one thing. Um, I did English literature at university. English was always my thing, English and history. So, yeah, it was always sort of lurking around. I'll be a writer one day, you know, because <laughs> uh, it seemed the easy option as well at the time. And, uh, and then I didn't become a writer. I went into publishing. So I was a sort of writer. I used to write. Uh, I was a journalist and a publisher. I did restaurant reviews and shop reviews and things for Time Out magazine and oh, yeah. uh, straight after university. But a book writer, I, I just sort of kept the idea in my head. And then I didn't actually write my first book till I was um, in my 40s. Oh, wow. Was that nonfiction or fiction? It was nonfiction. I've mm. never, yeah, I was, um, imagine I might write a fiction book one day, but so far I've had four nonfiction books published, uh, as well as dozens and dozens of guidebooks. So, yeah, I'm not a fiction person. I, I talk to people about this because I study music in university, which is kind of a contradiction myself here a little bit when I say I don't like things that are made up where well, music's made up every day, right? So it yes. doesn't really make sense. But in terms of, of words or stories, I like to hear truthful things, if you like. I like to hear someone's story about what they've done or experienced. Yeah. And I imagine for nonfiction, if you're going to write a book, you need some life experience first to experience something, then write it, right? So if you're writing nonfiction at 19, 20, 21, and this is an yes. amazing, unusual story, I don't know what else you can write about. I think you might have some incredible personal memoir stories to share that, you know, would, would um, be, could be written at any age, but you're right. Um, I think maybe it helps to be able to do non-fiction. Uh, it's a very blurry line. It's a sort of fascinating line between non-fiction and fiction because a lot of so-called non-fiction is, of course, made up. Yeah, based and, loosely uh, on a true story. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, whereas fiction is often heavily based on people's own lives. So <laughs> it just, it, yeah, we weave in between the two of them. And, and I, um, I'm a bit suspicious of the boundaries between the two. And my non-fiction does drift occasionally into into fiction and I think it's all the better for it really and I like um, weaving different different things into it yeah and the book we're going to discuss today is a mix of the two right in theory yeah. I guess mythical Greece and then what you're experiencing in Greece so it's like that combined we'll come to that in a minute but that's that combination of sort of drifting in and out of those different spheres yes yes quite yeah. interesting yeah um, but we'll come to that in a minute quickly before that when did you realise that maybe when you were younger that you maybe want to travel and maybe do writing in that sort of genre where you go to a city, write a guidebook, or you go to a place and write about it? Where did that come into the fore? I had the travel bug really early. I was very lucky that my dad worked for an airline, Cathay Pacific. So Wow. And, to uh, Hong Kong? Is that Hong Kong? Uh, yes, based in Hong yep. Kong. He, he lived and worked in Hong Kong but before I was born. But the sort of travel bug was in the air because wow. uh, he had lots of visitors um, from overseas coming to stay with us, uh, which I always thought was very sort of magical and romantic. And uh, then he was an older dad. So when he retired, uh, his parting gift was a trip around the world for him and his family. So we went, wow. uh, I was nine and we went to... Um, well, we stopped off at Moscow Airport. That was exciting enough. <laughs> but then we went to Japan and Hong Kong and uh, and then down to Australia and New Zealand. And it was an incredible. I was taken out of school to do it. So it was, it was phenomenal. So I was very lucky. So from that moment on, I was absolutely enraptured by the idea of travel. 
child. Uh, nine as well. Though, nine years yeah, old. Yeah, when I was growing oh. up in the 60s, 70s, um, there wasn't nearly so much overseas travel as there is now, of course. Mm. Uh, and most of our holidays were in the UK or, or the Channel Islands. We sometimes oh, nice. ventured that far, which are beautiful. But we went to France and we went to Greece once when I was 14, I think. So oh, we, we yeah. did, we started to travel more, but it, it was embedded very deep, the idea of travel being this exciting thing. And then uh, the idea of traveling and being able to write about it, um, I suppose it only occurred later when I started to read travel writers. And, okay. and you realize that uh, and the earliest travel writers I wrote were, were Gerald Durrell wrote, wrote, the earliest I read was Gerald Durrell, who had, he wrote all those zoological books about traveling mm. and gathering animals for a zoo in Jersey, which <laughs> seemed such an exciting idea. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I was bitten by that as well. The world seemed a mysterious and magnificent place. Yeah, that young though, I mean, that's it. That is, I think at that age, I was like probably equivalent, maybe like reading maps and books. I was obsessed with like maps and I had this mm. flag book at the time when I was nine, what this is mid nineties, right? This is like different times now in terms of countries, but I used to go through each country, like that's the population, that's the capital city and, and imagine what it's like, because I'm quite from a working class background, so we never got abroad, even yes. barely UK, right? So it's a huge, like something way out there for me, like just imagination yes. running wild. There's something so exciting about maps. That's also true. I did that, like you, I used to pour over atlases. I love uh, them. Yeah, yeah, I don't know what it is. Yeah. It is. They have a magic to them, and, and different maps have different styles as well. Yes. You know, those lovely Michelin maps of France, which are just which have little green lines drawn on roads that are particularly beautiful. Yeah. And that always seems so exciting to me. The map was often more exciting than the reality. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> Maybe not a quote for the travel podcast. I don't know. No, sorry. Yes. <laughs> yeah. no, don't funny. go anywhere. Just read maps. <laughs> yeah, read maps. Yeah. I was actually more, yeah, maps was my thing. Because I don't, the classic um, spinny world that you have in your bedroom, right? You spin oh, yes. the world and it's, it's a lamp as well. Um, mm. But I was more in, in the book, more intrigued to the flag. Like, why is it that color? Why is it that shape? Why is it that thing in it? Um, so I was trying yes. to understand the flags. That was kind of what I remember back in the day. That also adds to the mystery of travel doesn't it mm. imagining these different nations with their different flags and yep. then their different populations and yes if you've got a sort of classic atlas with all those key facts about the nation they, they yeah they were fascinating and they used to have much more sort of focus on you know what are their major uh, production you know it's oil mm. or gas or coal or steel or whatever it might be or sheep and uh, <laughs> yeah, it's endlessly <laughs> endlessly fascinating it is and i think the first fascinating one I remember is Nepal, which is behind me on my screen, because I was like, why is that different shape? Why is it not like rectangles or square like the rest of them? So that was like, oh, that's, that's interesting. I was most disappointed when I got to high school because I thought taking geography, I was like, right, I'm a demon here. I know most of the capital cities. I know most of the populations. I'm pretty adverse to a lot of the countries in the world. And we end up kind of learning about rivers and soil. I was like, oh, wasn't as good yeah. as I thought it was going to be. I know. Geography is a constant disappointment, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah massive disappointment so I, yeah. I tried to take it as a level but failed because i thought oh, i'm just not into it i'm not into like no it was it was not what we were expecting i thought it would be exploration up rivers <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah. way through forests and jungles in the borneo jungle yeah yeah <laughs> quick question off the off the script here golden age of travel what would you say is the golden age yeah that's a really interesting question i've been reading a lot and i'm not sure it's really the golden age of travel i've been reading a lot about um british travelers in europe in the 18th century okay uh, which yeah. you know in the sort of 1750s 1780s around then it's uh 
really interesting time and that one mm. they had to you know it was it's harder to travel then but i think really the golden age of travel for people who had money must have been the sort of early part of the 20th century when when travel became easier you know suddenly there were motor cars but there was no one on the roads or you know yeah for those who could it was definitely that was the time um for easy travel i mean you know obviously it was exciting to go to places that people from your own country had not been to before or not very mm. much that must have been a staggering experience whereas the the world is of course you know closed now you know well you can see it on social media right yeah exactly <laughs> um, yeah that's not it's not a great way yes. to, to think about it because I, I imagine people come to vancouver here right obviously apart from the first nation people who, who are already here when the europeans come over they must think wow look at this like inlet and it's got this like like little bit of land that spits out from the sea well, or cbd now it wasn't cbd then but like wow like we should stay here and build it like you just yes. can't imagine what they think and what they no. probably imagine what it might be like but they're probably like wow this is different to what i was expecting absolutely staggering for people and of course you know and then of course they're encountering people who are already, already there yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it's going, what are you doing <laughs> yeah yeah do we live by side there's a story yeah. right there about when the European settlers came here, they built up CBD a little bit, so the downtown area, and there's a huge fire ripped through the CBD in 30 minutes, like all the buildings were incinerated, really. And the population in CBD were running. They couldn't go anywhere, but to the water, which is like just by the CBD. If you go to Vancouver, there's a harbour there. Cruise ships now come in, which I don't like. Oh, you touched on cruise ships. We'll mention that in, in your mm-hmm. book. I, I hate cruise ships. Um, they come in. It's where they, they dock, right? And the First Nation people, which is based at Squamish, just a bit further on towards Whistler, Mm-hmm. They heard about this and they got their boats and they rowed down to the shore, picked the European settlers up and took them to North Vancouver, where I'm now across the water. And that was the first sort of like maybe communication where it's not like bad or it's not like that war trying to take your land. It's like, oh, you helped us. Like, you're, oh, you're a human being as well. And it's like that started the sort of like, okay, we can live with these people that they're just like us. And it kind of like started Vancouver off in that way. Oh, whereas maybe. before it's a bit, you know, this is our land. Don't take it away and a bit edgy. Yes. Yes, how amazing from that yeah. story. And pay people do in, in a whole, I think you mentioned this as well, but people are generally the same. So I think if you go anywhere in your mm. in your travels, you're going to meet pretty much the same type of people, the same dreams and stuff. Yes, you are. Question here as well. When you studied, did you like do any free writings or publications for like publishers or your university? Did you like get out there early and get some stuff out there? I wrote theatre reviews. I was at uh, Edinburgh University, so mm. every time the festival came around, I'd write theatre reviews for the local student newspapers, that kind of thing. Uh, and I wrote short stories for myself and, um, you know, fiction. Yeah. And, um, but no, because as soon as I left university, I, I went to work for Time Out. Right and, okay, um, yeah. and they immediately got me writing reviews in their. Uh, particularly where they they write reviews, so mm. I was very well trained to write, but it was all um, in the timeout way, which is okay. a very specific the way of timeout. Is that like set instructions, uh, yeah. is it? Exactly, <laughs> you know, yeah. and uh, and it's not I, it's we, and it's you know, it's it's okay. sort of um, it's a particular way of doing it. It's very tight and it's very um, it's great training as a writer, learning how to express everything you need to express about a place uh, mm. in only a hundred words or one hundred and fifty sometimes or. 200 if you could you know you really let go <laughs> but it wasn't uh it, yeah it was that sort of it's extremely structured review after review i wrote hundreds of reviews okay time. that's quite a skill isn't it like, like say if you've got like 150 200 words 
and you probably got like 500 words like oh god i gotta get that down to what they want it's like yes. it's like clipping for the podcast right i've got like an hour and a half i'm like i need three clips that are probably like 30 to 45 seconds each where do i start like, you, you kind of get like okay that's good you chop it up it takes time but once you get in the swing of things you, you can do it pretty it's efficiently. pure training and mm. uh, and it's great training it's really useful as a writer i think i mean it might constrain some people depending on the kind of writing they want to do but it worked for me because it was all about um observation mm. seeing what you wanted to see absorbing it and then relaying it you know why should people want to go to this particular restaurant and why should they not want to go to this restaurant? <laughs> well, that's a much easier review to write the negative one. <laughs> yeah, but, true. Uh, it just is, you know, it's, it's so much easier to be negative than enthusiastic about something. This food is really delicious. There's only so many ways you can say that, but there are many, many ways you can say that this food is absolutely foul uh, and that people are rude or whatever it might be. Or, you know, so um, I really enjoyed my time at Time Out, but it was, it was, very good grounding in 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 writing mm. and uh, not repeating yourself because you know again I, we'd be given um a certain number of restaurants to write for the annual restaurant guide and uh, you know, they'd all be in the same section so you couldn't start everyone in the same way you can't say this restaurant uh -huh. is x and this okay. restaurant is y you had to think of new ways all the time of saying very similar stuff that was good training for me we'd be i've been doing the eating guide and the shopping guide for a couple of years we started doing city guides and travel guides so i got the chance to write about cathedrals as well as restaurants <laughs> you're writing the same piece but you switch around a little bit it's the same in music when i was studying where some people might say oh, i don't like that chorus group of chords and then okay I'll, I'll, I'll change it you don't change it you keep the same chords you're switching around mm. so they, they oh that's amazing now you're like oh yeah okay yeah it's the same thing but to switch around so that that is good training for you as well yes uh, whether yes. it's music or writing it is like it's think good, on the spot yeah. as well like okay i need to maybe just change that a little bit yeah there's a discipline to it i'm sure mm. as there is to the writing um because when you sit at the beginning of the day and you know you've got 30 reviews to write about restaurants it's uh <laughs> and how you're going to say it in 30 different ways that's a, that does stretch you even that can become you know slightly rhythmic eventually yeah but you need to keep surprising people i think that's the word, the main lesson i learned about writing is you've got to keep surprising people otherwise they stop reading yeah and um you want them to read what you've written that's the most important thing <laughs> i wonder if that's changed this day and age you know with um modern society where we just have 10 20 second clips on tiktok and you yes. move on can people read even books these days i think it's a it's a valuable question to ask it's a really good question and it certainly changed things and i'm i'm actually very aware of it as i write because i do want them to read what i've written otherwise mm. why am i wasting all this time um well it would be a waste of time so um hopefully people will do and you just but the to keep grab if you read old older travel writing um it does maunder on at times there are just <laughs> moments when you just think please just get on with it or i just don't need to know this uh and i think that's what's changed there's one that you've got to keep throwing in you know i mean you'll notice that there's gaps in you know every book only have short the, the passages are much shorter generally yeah. Um, and then there'll be a couple of asterisks then you'll change direction or tempo or whatever it is but you've got to keep keep surprising people and that's <laughs> uh yeah i think that's a sign of the times yeah unfortunately so again i keep harping back to music so i think that's something i relate to is people can't listen to albums anymore mm. some people just release singles right because people can maybe listen to two and a half three minutes at a push but you get them to sit there and listen to an hour of the same band on, on the same album they're going to struggle and it's the same with books and 
reading articles, right? I think yeah, well, it's, I love it's a book. Concept, you can, you can, uh, yeah, because yeah. you can get into it, right? You can get really into the, it takes you away from maybe what, what you experience in real life, like for that hour, hour and a half, you're in another mm. world, which is what I found with your book. I was in Greece. Thank you. It is. It's very, um, you know, a book is not a series of tweets, whatever it might no. be. A book <laughs> is, it's, it's its own art form. And it's, you, yeah, we're all a bit more restless now. Just that I noticed in myself uh, and certainly in my children that we are more restless. So it takes longer, even, you know, for me to just lure myself into a book. But once I'm in there, it's an entirely immersive experience. Yeah. And it's a wonderful experience that you can't get anywhere else. Because you're, you know, you're a very active participant when you're reading. It's a, you're not just passively sitting there absorbing stuff or flicking restlessly from mm. YouTube to YouTube video. <laughs> you are, you are in it, and uh, and you're using your mind and you're engaging with the writer, and, and it's um, and what you see is pro- provoked by them, by the writer, but also you're going off in your own, on your own direction, and it, it's yeah, it's. I, so I write books. I love books. Yeah, yeah. I've, do you know, I, I didn't read a book until last year, like maybe January last year. I, I said, right, news resolution, bit bit cliche. But I was like, no, this year I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read books. And I yes. haven't stopped since. And I've got so many I read now, mostly travel, a, a, a few sort of like self-help type books, if you like. But um, Johan Hari, I don't know if you know the, the journalist. Yeah, but I've certainly heard about it. Yeah, he's just written a book, I think about a month or two months ago, released called Stolen Focus. And that's all about attention. So he'd done like 10 years of research, interviewing people about why can't we concentrate anymore? And even mm. he said, right in that book, he was getting distracted by TikTok or Instagram. So he had to put his phone in a key safe and like keep it locked away for like five hours where you can't get into it until the timer goes just to write a book. So even he it's was amazing. noticing himself. No, I, know. I, read, I read the article he wrote associated with that book and about how he'd gone off to some island off the northeast coast of America or somewhere just to do this yeah. book, hadn't he? Yeah. And uh, yeah, he's absolutely right. I, that, it's that agitated time between, you know, when you first settle down to do some writing, some research or read a book and your mind is always somewhere else thinking, I wonder what you know, so-and-so is doing or mm. I wonder what's happening on WhatsApp. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, do you find that when you read? I find this when I read, where I've read maybe two pages and then third page, I'm starting to wonder, I'm like, oh, James, yes. concentrate. So I go back to the start of that because I haven't really concentrated yes. on what the words are. Do you find you? Oh, I can finish whole paragraphs or pages and realize I haven't taken a word of it in. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll go, but it happened to me today. I'm reading, uh, well, I'm researching a new book and it's just, uh, you know, I'm sunk quite deep into various writers who are slightly tricky at times. So I'm wandering off. But it's more the initial. It's that first few agitated minutes Mm. when I'm still in um, TikTok mode. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a fan of TikTok. Okay, right. WhatsApp, yeah. Twitter, you know, all those awful things are just, you know, too addictive to. Yeah, it's crazy how they're so addictive. Yeah, anyway, amazing. now let's go to quickly your travel guides, because I'm interested to hear about your travel guides for UK. You mentioned after time out, you went to travel guides. Like, How did that come about, really? Did you start, start to visit different parts of UK and think, oh, I like this place, I want to write about it? No, it was, um, it was at time out that um, they decided to do travel guides. So we'd already done London guides, loads of London guides, shopping and eating and all that sort of stuff. And then we'd done a London guide and we thought, well, surely we should do um, Paris, New York, Amsterdam, Mm. and then Barcelona, Prague, Rome. It just, you know, we all just had an amazing time. And I was lucky enough that I was put in charge of that that expansion. So they'd already existed. So we'd got the template, which made life easy. And it was a timeout template. And no one had really done till we did i don't think travel guides like listings 
you know, okay. there'd been longer, long form writing that's yeah. you know, great rolling text prose. Whereas we came and did, right, what are the 50 best restaurants in Prague? And, and here they are. And here are their reviews because we're all so good at <laughs> yeah, reviews. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And, uh, and so I wrote uh, or contributed to a lot of those. But the, also the other thing that we did that was different um, is we used to employ local teams of writers to write them. So we would find uh-huh. 20 odd authors, not even one person, but 20 authors in Prague, the expert on Prague restaurants, mm. bars, nightlife, history, and we'd employ them and then they'd write for us. But So I would go to Prague and I'd interview people and meet them, contribute a few little restaurant reviews for myself, whatever, and write some of it, but basically commission other people to write it. So I was writing less, in fact. I started to write less and less as, yeah, as time yeah. went on, as we did more and more of these things, because at our peak we were doing 50 or 60 books a year, I think, so we were really wow. churning them out. Yeah, I mean there were new editions as well as. You know, mm. And was that for um, UK as time. well, or was that just for Europe? Yes, it was UK. Well, we sort of started to run out of cities. Uh, and <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> cities that you could devote three hundred pages to certainly. <laughs> um, so we did guides to Britain after that, or whatever it might be, and then we did books on British seaside, or we did country walks. We did walks books to London and New York and Paris, and we were just. Um, coming up with loads of ideas and um, it was a great time to be there and to be given the opportunity to to let our imaginations run wild certainly but yeah we did a lot of british a lot of british stuff but uh, we were always slightly more focused the guy who owned time out tony Ellis, who'd set it up he was slightly bored by britain so okay. he'd get a bit restless if you said to him let's do you know countryside or something and go, <laughs> oh, God, no, i want new york so he wanted cities yeah fair <laughs> so um so we did a lot of cities, and that's how that's how I ended up doing so many guidebooks, basically. And was that like, as I imagine it, just travel, write, or interview? So many travel opportunities per year, I guess. Imagine. There were there were huge, and again, um, they dwindled as the as time went on, and, and yeah. I found myself thrust up the organisation. <laughs> uh, I spent more and more time behind my desk, uh, waving other people off uh, to Prague. <laughs> rather than oh no. Myself. Yeah, that's not good. Uh, so it all backfired really after a while, but it was, it was, um, yes, I did travel a lot and we, we started to sell up magazines in other cities as well. And it was, uh, it did involve a lot of travel. I think the, the best thing about it for me, uh, from my part of it was, was to go to the city for a week or two and you'd have to get to know it incredibly well by meeting a lot of people who you'd kind of arranged to meet before mm. the local would try and, you know, get the, the tap into the local expat scene but also people who have absolutely nothing to do with that expat scene yeah, yeah and crucial you'd, you'd go and, crucial yeah. uh, and locals of course um and you'd go and um, meet them all over the city wherever they wanted to meet you and mm-hmm. uh it was brilliant for me. i loved that i loved that feeling of really getting to know a city and not sleeping very much for a week or two and um absorbing the place and getting lost in it but also being in the company of you know people who really knew what they were talking about and really knew the best places to take you so it was a great great thing it's quite rare isn't it to get deep into a city because how many people just dip in for a weekend can you really see it you, know, you can tick exactly. things off but can you see paris in the weekend absolutely not no, like no, you can't so you, you need a couple of weeks right it's an accepted way of doing a city, isn't it? We're doing yes. Prague this weekend. We're doing you know, Lisbon <laughs> next weekend or something. Yeah. You're not really. I mean, of course, you you know, you can see an awful lot if you if you don't sleep in 48 hours. So you <laughs> <True>. just, <laughs> there's lots you can see, but there's no, it's, I mean, to really get to know a place, it takes a long time. Mark, two weeks is brilliant, but... You know, yeah, two weeks is... 
I mean, is that long mm. enough? I mean, Paris is huge, right? So as yeah. an example, or New York, I spent yes. 10 days in New York. I was like, oh, I've barely touched the surface here. Exactly. You have yeah. to live there. And yeah. um, sadly, we can't live everywhere. I always no. had an intense regret. <laughs> if only I could live in New York, if only I could live in Florence, you know, wherever you are, you, you wanted to go and live there. Well, I did. But um, I get it all the time. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think my idea of the podcast, the next stage of like, is what you exactly described it as. So my idea for the podcast is next, I'm traveling and I'm meeting the people to interview on the mm. road. Imagine if I was in London now, be like face to face with a microphone in front of me. Like, okay, what's best to see in Badham? So that's the idea of me going away with the podcast is I think there's a stage one, which is interviewing people that have done loads of travels and next stage is interviewing locals. So that's kind of yes. where my idea is. I think there's a potential, not gap in the market, but like, I think people would like that. Oh, this is like yeah. Julio from Mexico City. He's telling us like, this is what best things are to see and do. He's a local. Brilliant. Doesn't get any better what than you that. Want- that was our philosophy of time out. If you want to know about the nightlife of Paris, you go and find a Parisian DJ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To yeah. tell you, that's what yeah. you do. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's obvious if you think about it, or a very, really keen local clubber. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You don't ask someone who's just jetted in for three days to, <laughs> to tell you. It's not, uh, it's not the same thing at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that's the, the idea uh, for listeners. If you listen, that's the kind of the future. Great to hear that, like out and about, you're doing that. And obviously you've written some previous works as well before we get to your current book. Yes. Yes, I have. I've got footnotes, Oak and Ash and Thorn and To War of God. Um, That's right. Uh, And the current one, uh, I think of beauty. So yeah, To War with God, To War with God, I wrote while I was still at Time Out um, in the mornings, getting up early. Um, But I've just, uh, in the last two or three years of being there, it wasn't really as much fun as it used to be. So I was keen to get out and I thought, well, I'll just try and write my way out of this place. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, makes sense in a way it's kind of doesn't yes. make sense yeah. <laughs> and uh to war with god was the story of my grandfather who was an army chaplain in the first world war oh, okay and he lost his faith on the front and we had always known this but we hadn't known what he'd done during the war and then i found his memoirs his diary his photographs everything in a suitcase in the attic which i'd sort of half known wow. was there but i'd never looked into and it was just full of photographs and maps of the trenches maps, and everything yeah. Lovely maps. Uh, incredible discovery. And I was telling someone this at the queue at the Frankfurt Book Fair, and I was overheard by an agent who sort of tapped me on the shoulder and said, you should write this as a book. So that's how I... <laughs> wow, there you up. go. <laughs> exactly. Very lucky. Yeah. Um, so that's that. And then, but it's uh, slightly different because it's sort of history and, and war yeah. history and it's personal, it's family history. Uh, whereas the, the, there was a sort of quite a long gap. And then I did Oak and Ash and Thorn, which is a nature writing book. It's about Britain's woods and forests, and it's um, quite polemical. It's a sort of, um, what have we done to our woods? Why do we have fewer woods in mm. this country than any other European country? And oh, is that a fact? Had, oh, yeah, wow. that is a fact. Well, second lowest. Uh, why have we got to that state? And um, you know, why are most of our forests conifer plantations, which are not native to Britain, as opposed to the traditional oh. broadleaf forests? And, yeah. and what's going on? generally and then there's a lot about sort of the myth of forests i was really interested in that folk tales around forests yes yeah. so that became my that was my first uh, probably proper book for you know commissioned <laughs> by a proper publisher yeah. and uh and then i followed that up with footnotes which is uh, i mean the woodland book is a sort of travel book because i travel around britain uh, mm-hmm. and wrote it like a travel book 
and I deliberately included a lot of humor in it because nature writing has this very po-faced nature yeah. writing. It doesn't tend to have jokes. And then I wrote footnotes, which is um, a trip around Britain in the footsteps of famous writers. So I stitched together, I found 12 writers, six men, six w women from across history who'd written travel books of oh, Britain. Wow. Yeah. And then, and then I took bits of them. So it became one continuous journey all around Britain from the oldest one was Gerald of Wales from 1183 or something. He goes around Wales and writes <laughs> about it. He's Brilliant. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, a, and then the most recent was Beryl Bainbridge, who wrote a travel book in 1983. And so it was those. And, I, and, then, and the idea of it was, um, it's a sort of environmental book at its heart, because you're looking at what they saw. And Gerald in Wales in 1183 is surrounded by beavers and wolves and an incredible, rich uh, profusion of wildlife. Yeah. And so if you go and compare, you know, he wrote very precisely about what he saw, and then you can go there now see something very different very different so, unfortunately yeah. It, yeah i mean it's not a long lament i've tried to make it fun and um, <laughs> there's lots of you know trips to pubs and things but it is um, at its heart it's an environmental book so that was footnotes and then and then i moved on to a thing of beauty yeah which we'll come to now Wrong, one very good question did you go to norfolk on your travels for any of these books that's where i'm from i'm from norwich Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. There's loads of coastal towns. There's no, like I know fields all, yeah. everywhere. No? Yeah, exactly. It's a lovely, lovely part of the world. And uh, time out, we did a book of uh, we did a book of Norfolk and Suffolk. So Yeah, yeah. But we never got, I didn't personally get to Norfolk. Sorry. I love it. Oh. I love that North Coast. Yeah, it's, it's quite popular, right, with the second homes yeah. from people from yeah, London and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> it's actually become a bit of a problem. I saw an article the other day that locals are getting annoyed because well, of course they are. They've just got these empty houses sitting there. That's just their people's second homes. It's a double problem, isn't it? Yeah, pushing up the prices and means that they're only busy at certain times. It's like Airbnb is a problem for many. many yes. Cities. Yeah. Absolutely. That. Yeah, it's really but hard. Great coast know. up there, though. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, lovely. Okay, thing of beauty. Can you tell the listeners what was the premise of this book? Yeah, I wanted to write a book about Greek myths and I wanted to write about them in the setting of Greece itself. I thought it would just be really interesting because if you look at the Greek myths, which a lot of people think they know, and we all, like me, we only sort of half know them or they're kind of part of our culture, but you sort mm -hmm. of know the names, Achilles or Odysseus, yeah. whatever it might be, Zeus. Um, you sort of know, you know, you're aware of it and there's been a kind of spate of films and books recently and I just thought it'd be interesting to go to Greece and see where they emerged. And um, you can, you know, the, most of the myths, um, not all of them, but have set in very specific parts of Greece. Like real places, so right? Just, yeah, real places. Yeah. And uh, even places that people thought weren't real have emerged <laughs> some, <Okay>. somehow <laughs> from, thanks to archeology span and uh, they do exist. And so um, I just thought it'd be very interesting to just go there and, and feel if they had some more resonance. I mean, it's partly an excuse to go to Greece, but of course, they had yeah. more resonance in the places where they were set. And um, and then at the back of that, so that was the sort of main premise. And I, I thought I would just, you know, choose 10, 12 myths that I loved mm. and go to those places. And then I, I was interested to know if the Greek myths themselves had some kind of message to us today. People are mm. always looking for kind of ancient wisdom that will teach us something about the world. 
And the myths are just wonderful in that sense, because a lot of them are just kind of short, brutal and violent. There's a lot of... Yeah, you know, a lot of violence. <laughs> there's, there's just that. But <laughs> yeah. others have, have uh, really intriguing messages, I felt. And so I wanted to go there and see, particularly in Greece, which I feel is, is such a resonant place. It's such a beautiful place. It's mm. why it's called a thing of beauty. It is a beautiful, beautiful place. Uh, and you know, unparalleled beaches and mountains and rivers. And it's just gorgeous. Um, but it is also suffering, you know, quicker than many places, the effects of climate chaos, overdevelopment and underdevelopment and economic collapse and economic growth and all the rest of it. It's just, it's a bit of a canary in the coal mine from that point of view. So, and it's mass tourism. Um, you know, what effect is that having? Modern Greece is fascinating in itself, but then you layer it on top of the myths. I just thought that's a really interesting story to see the connections between the two. Yeah, and I learned a lot because I don't know too much about Greek mythology. I, I was probably like what you said, I, I knew a few names, Zeus mm. in one of them, but and Achilles, obviously, but never really knew uh, the story yes. even in depth behind it. So for me, it was like, okay, I'm learning about Greek mythology and I'm following your your sort of like travels along Greece and what you think of the place that's mentioned in the myth and maybe you're yeah. speaking to the locals as well about what they think. And I found it really interesting about your that's thoughts good. on what you found the place to be, whether it's disappointing or even better than what you thought compared to the myth. Because I think the myth gives you a bit of a, a romantic um, a vision in your mind about what, what the place looks like. But then I think you mentioned a few times that you're down a road towards a place and it's like, oh, there's like, a mine there or there's a factory there that you just didn't expect to see on a road to somewhere where it's in the myth where it's like I did it gardens and stuff so like yes exactly I never I didn't expect to come across people in white robes or in sandals <laughs> all the time but at the same time you can't help but feel the romanticism of the, the Greek myths and certainly because I, re I read them when I was young and, and yeah. they've kind of stayed with me uh, and this idea that there are spirits and trees and, you know, there's pan in the mountainside and mm. everywhere and all that kind of thing. It's a, it's a lovely, idyllic idea. But of course, Greece is not that. And, and you know, a lot of the Greeks are, are not remotely interested in that anyway. Yeah. You know, why are we? Why are we as outsiders always banging on about Athena and Heracles? And things? <laughs> yeah. They're just, you know, obviously there's plenty of taverners called Aphrodite and they're yeah, you know, making their money from that. It was a way to write about the modern world is what it was. Of course yeah. it was. The myths are really interesting and they, they've got a message for us, for sure. Mm. Um, but they're just great stories. And my challenge, I think, writing it, the thing I found hardest was, you know, how much myth to include, how much Greek history to include and how yes. much now and how much me, you know, sort of <laughs> constantly kind of skirting this, very, treading this line and, and not quite, yeah, always thinking I can't just, you know, that's enough myth, <laughs> for goodness sake. But let's just, <laughs> let's throw in a bar quickly or whatever it might be. I just, you know. <laughs> throw in a bar, yeah. And you mentioned uh, Pausanias quite a lot. Wasn't he uh, a Greek guy who wrote about his travels in Greece? So you, you kind amazing of, thing. you, you yeah. heart back to him about what he said about at the time what he saw so that that's good because you can relate to a real life writing if you like from back in the day for what you're seeing yeah, so it's quite I'm good so to, pleased to discover paul Sanius, who wrote mm. um in the second century he was writing um so he was in roman time rome had conquered greece by that stage yeah but he was greek living um outside of greece so he wrote a guide book to greece it's wow. one of the world's first guidebooks and it's a really fascinating thing because part of it is just myth and part of it is he believed in the old Greek gods. Mm. It's really interesting to read someone who just passionately believes in the, the, the spirituality of that. 
but also they used him later, you know, 1500 years later, people took Pausanias with him, a copy with them to Greece. And then he would describe, well, just around this corner is an old, you know, is the city, you know, and, and they'd use that and they'd come around the corner and there'd be nothing there and they'd dig right. down and there would be the city. So wow. I, I just love the idea that he was a slightly sort of earnest guidebook writer. So I yes. felt a great affinity. Yeah, to of course. That's what I felt. <laughs> That's what I felt. Yeah. Yes. I, I, <laughs> old Paul Senior. So I got very attached to him. But he also, he wrote, uh, you know, some of his stories are brilliant. They're very funny. I mean, some mm. of it's very boring. Yeah. To be honest, I mean, I wouldn't recommend anyone just picks it up bedtime reading. <laughs> but <laughs> okay. in bursts, he's he's brilliant, and yeah. there's some great stories in there. Okay, and what about Lord Byron? You mentioned him at the start of the book. What's yeah. the link there with him? Well, Lord Byron, um, you know, the most famous poet of his day in in the early 19th century, and and hugely scandalous. And the the problem was, I although I had all this plan to go to Greece, I couldn't go to Greece because I was about to go in March 2020 oh, okay. when the pandemic arrived. Yeah. So I was, I'd done all my research, or what I thought I had, I ended up doing much more research than I do normally <laughs> because uh, I got trapped in Britain. So I went to Nottinghamshire, uh, to Newstead Abbey, which is his ancestral home, Lord Byron's home, which he inherited, I think, when he was about 10 or something. And um, I spent a bit of time thinking about him there because he was obsessed with Greece himself. He yeah. fought and died for Greek independence from the Ottoman oh. Empire. And he died, yeah. Yeah, he was 36 or whatever mm. when he died uh, of a fever. He never actually got to fight very much, but mm. he, he got over there with his, he funded Greek independence. He poured all his fortune into it. He sold everything, including yeah. his house, just to get over there. So he's a fascinating person. And, and he was also obsessed with Greek myths. And so I just thought, if I can't get to Greece, I'll go to Lord Byron. He had this idea, which I thought was really nice, that, which is a Greek idea. Um, he planted an oak tree in Newstead Abbey in the grounds uh, when he was 10. Mm -hmm. And then he got this idea that if the tree was flourishing, so would he. And if he was not, if he was ill, the tree would die. So he felt kind of umbilically linked. He was obsessed with this idea that this, he was umbilically linked to this yeah. tree and that if it died, he would die. And he used to send anxious letters back saying, how's my tree doing? <laughs> and, uh, uh, and that's a Greek idea that there's a spirit, oh, okay. in, the, uh, spirit in the trees. Yeah. Um, I mean, being Byron, he kind of put himself into that role, but he was, uh, yeah. So I started with him just because he was, and he made two journeys to Greece. One when he was a kind of young man with his friends uh, and much more optimistic. And then once when he went to fight and then died for mm. independence. So he's he's revered in Greece. There's all sorts of barren mm. squares and barren roads over in Greece. What were some of your like, favourite myths? Because that sounds like a bit of a myth, isn't it? Like planting a tree with the trying to yeah, align exactly. yourself. So what, what were some of your favourite myths that you included in the book? And you mentioned 12, um, did you say, you put in there? But Well, I got many, many more myths than that, but I got yeah. sort of 12 places out of places. it. So okay. the, is, yeah. the book's teeming with myths, and I try, yeah. I try not to get bogged down. But the ones I particularly loved, I got very obsessed with the myth of Pandora. Oh, yeah. Pandora's box, which yeah. it wasn't a box, it was a jar, but it was this is Pandora who who was given um, this jar by Zeus who wanted to punish mankind and was sent down. And he said, Whatever you do, don't open the jar. <laughs> of course, you know, <laughs> yeah, classic. one night she lifts the yeah. lid and all the troubles of the world pour out. And yeah. until that moment, there was no disease or death or, or anything. And then uh, plagues descended on the world. We were being punished by Zeus for being wicked and for Prometheus having stolen fire. So it's, they endlessly kind of go on and on these myths. But I, I became rather obsessed by that because hope was left in the jar. Yeah. And I and I 
sort of started to look more and more seriously for this idea of hope. Mm. Um, because I was feeling very gloomy sitting in Newstead Abbey in Byron's home, thinking pandemic. about the pandemic yeah. and also everything else that's going wrong with the planet, uh, I thought, well, go to Greece and look for hope. That would be really interesting. Yeah. So I did, you know, you can go to, well, you can kind of guess where that myth is set and you can go there, but you can certainly travel Greece looking for hope. And that's what I ended up doing. So that's a lovely myth. The other one I became rather intrigued by, can hardly say his name, Erisichthon. The okay. guy who um, chopped down a sacred tree and was punished by Demeter, the goddess of corn yeah. uh, and harvests. She punishes him by making him hungry. And the more he, oh, hungry, yes. he gets... He keeps eating things, doesn't he? Yeah. He, he eats everything. <laughs> yeah. He eats his household, he eats his cats, and then in the end he eats himself, which I thought was... A, <laughs> a, it's a very good analogy for um, modern-day capitalism, I decided in the end. Yeah, that is absolutely true. Yeah. That fascinated me, that, that myth, because I was like, all the things you can give someone, like, oh, you can't walk or you can't talk, they're obvious, but like, yeah, you're always hungry. You eat food, yeah. you can't... Like, oh, yeah, that's actually quite a bad one. If you think about it, yeah, it's a terrible one, isn't it? (laughs) Awful one, yeah. They were good on punishments, the Greeks. Yeah, they 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 had a cruel imagination. (laughs) uh, You were saying it earlier about, you know, travelling the world and uh, people being essentially similar, which, of course, they are. But also you have to guard against that when you you look back two and a half thousand years at ancient Greeks. And, uh, you know, they had sacrifices and they had particularly animals and possibly at one time humans. And and they, they had a very different different approach to things mm. so you have to just I, you just I had to keep reminding myself they were, they were alien as well as familiar yeah what I liked about you talk about capitalism there about how we're just over consumerism over just the thinking of wanting more 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 constant growth 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 we all know that can't last it's impossible mm. to last how can you keep growing when it's just not gonna yes. last right I think you mentioned is there is there a message from the gods to tell us like you know come on let's, let's sort it out because mm. you, you think the Greek gods would like come down and give us a bit of a sign right yeah, exactly. We're all waiting for the sign. Well, normally, yeah. you know, in a Greek myth, you know, Poseidon, the god of the sea, would have risen by now and sent a you know huge wave and wiped out humanity with our, <laughs> with yeah. our behavior. But that's obviously, as I said, the book maybe it is happening, but only in slow motion. I, I was looking for that, and of course, the Greeks do have messages. Nothing in excess is one yes. Greek message. Yeah, you know, moderation is a good thing. So yeah. um, that's what that myth is about. The, the, the unassuageable hunger you know you just can't keep taking more and more and expect everything to be fine so their, yeah. their myths are full of that but then also not just the myths but there's kind of accompanying philosophies and plato and socrates and so on all have messages about honoring the earth and plato writes about the hills around athens how um they chopped down all the trees around athens for building and then you know all the soil just washed off them uh, and they're just left with bare rock. And you can go today, of course, and just stare at that bare rock and think, well, actually, two and a half thousand years ago, we have an eyewitness account that those were covered in forests. Yeah. And now they can't be because there's nothing nothing there. So it's, you know, it's all there in the Greek books <laughs> yeah. to be picked up. We know what to do. It's just, it's very hard to do it. And did you find in Greece, to, to what nature now, that even though it's there, like you say, it's written down or it, it's talked about, that we are still, especially in Greece, still planning on with like clearing forests and the awful like fumes coming out of all these factories. Did, did you find in Greece on your travels that that was pretty happening? Like that, that is going well, on? Well, it is happening everywhere. And I, I mm. met some amazingly optimistic people in Greece. I think that's, really, yeah. and often it's the people who are doing something about it who are the most optimistic. Course, yeah. 
and uh, yeah, who are you know enthusiastically plant replanting and and doing what they can to you know mitigate various disasters. But you yeah, you can see it in Greece because Greece is so beautiful, and and you've seen on the TV screens the fires mm. that are raging there yeah. all the time. Many of them man started through arson, but it's just. You know, everything's tinder dry. It's you know, it's it's very clear what's happening. It was again a difficult line to tread because it's it's not something I just wanted to spend an entire travel book. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. Uh, it's that would be a very different kind of book, and and but it's also there. And this is a dilemma I think many travel writers must face now. Like nature writers, how can you write about nature or travel without mentioning this? But then, how much do you mention it? And you know, mm. people feel that they've heard heard it all before which in many ways they have. But so you have to find ways of smuggling it in slightly, I suppose, the message. And uh, that's why I went for the Greek myths, because I thought, actually, I'll just kind of recapture that and then go to places which are just so evocative and yeah. so beautiful. Uh, and the rivers and mountains of for- and forests of Greece are, are stunning. Yeah, and yeah. to follow those rivers up up the mountains and see where the, the sources of rivers and the Greeks believed there were gods in the rivers and you know, river gods, mm. river spirits and um, mountain spirits. You know, it's everywhere, all around you. And um, you can wander in Arcadia, which, of course, is such an evocative name. And, and you know, you'd be miles from anywhere, miles from anyone, and just feel, you do feel extraordinary connection to it all. And although it's easy to, too easy to dwell on the horror of things that are happening, once you're there, you're also, you, the beauty is overwhelming. And I think that's almost our best hope. And I did certainly hear that from many people I spoke to was that, you know, just look around you. It's, it's amazing. Now, why would you want to yeah. destroy that? Why would we not all be working as hard as we can to, <laughs> to make sure this remains? So It's baffling, yeah. isn't it? Because you can't help but delve into, I think, if you're writing about Greece or anywhere in the world, you have to delve into slightly politics, slightly the, the systems that we have, because you, you can't not. When we have yes. a system where it's it's constantly about making money and that is at all costs, then it's going to be a cost to the nature. You can't avoid that. Like that is a it's a fact, and we know this. But yes. it's amazing that you met people who are trying to almost fight back against that and protect the nature because we need it. Otherwise, it is all just going to go. <laughs> and well, that's animals too. And I I tried to burrow deep into this because it, you know it preoccupies me, and, it, and my questions are rather childish in a way, in the sense that. I find myself writing more often than I should have done. I had to edit it out. You know, what are we supposed to do? Yeah. I kept writing because yeah. you know, I was asking people, you know, yeah. as I went, but also I was asking myself, it's not enough. You know, as you've mentioned, that it's the systems themselves that, that are the problem. The, the extraordinary wealth that's been brought, the digging, there's a beautiful part of northwest Greece, um, Epirus. The forests of Epirus have been an older national parks, as far as I can tell, or huge parts of them, have been handed over to gas and oil companies for exploration because the Greek government tra- tragically has run out of money. So it's a kind of yeah. understandable yeah. thing that's going on. But so, but to go to Epirus and to see those forests and then to think, well, that's now going to be exploited and it's heartbreaking. But then you meet the people who are there fighting it and, and you do get hope from them as well. Mm-hmm. They're very aware. That's what I was struck by. Everyone I spoke to is so aware of the kind of global side of this yeah uh, you know they're very they feel very connected to because uh, it was happening while i was there the fires in california or whatever it might yeah. be they feel they feel very connected to that you can easily write an article about the best b- beaches of greece and not mention any of this but it, to write a whole book 
isn't I I couldn't do it. I had to mm. I found that you know you have to write about it because it's it's there right in front of you. You can't pretend it's not. Yeah, exactly. And if you read that book and you get to end like, oh that's a bit a bit of a downer. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's not much good news they went like that example you gave there about the oil and companies going into that forest. That's another bad, bad example. The Amazon's a problem. They're now yes. chowing down the um trees just for for soya fields that wouldn't even grow anything there so no i know it's just it's, it's true what's well, that's that feeling uh is the feeling i had at the beginning of the book and I, that yeah. i described in when i'm sitting there in uh, newstead abbey feeling desperate but actually um that was the feeling i wanted to get rid of i just wanted yeah. to go and, you know just to encompass and encounter beauty and to meet people who were i hope gonna give me some answers to it all <laughs> and, yeah. uh, what do we do yeah. <laughs> What do we do? Uh, yeah. What is and, it? Uh, and I met some incredible people who, mm. you know, apart from just you know, meeting people who well, I wasn't just talking about this all the time, there were other <laughs> themes in my book, but but this particular theme, um, which does undercut it all, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I met some amazing people who really are doing some extraordinary things. So hopeful, hopeful things on my yeah. quest for hope. And your session for hope, as you said. Also, you mentioned quite interesting, you're hoping to dream in Greece. I know the Greeks uh, believed that you could tell the future. The future was set. They believed that. Yeah. And not even the gods um, could alter it. Oh, wow. Could, okay. Like, sometimes they could just, you know, the Greeks, <laughs> great thing about Greek myths, so they all contradict each other. So yeah. you can't really get it wrong. <laughs> Essentially, the, the future is set and you can't, you can't alter it. But the gods uh, know the future. Some of them know it better than others. Zeus knows everything. And Apollo who is the god at Delphi, was the oracle at Delphi. Mm-hmm. He knew the future. So you could go to the oracles and consult them and they would tell you the future. And they believed that dreams also held clues to the future if you could only interpret them right. So I thought while I was mm-hmm. in Greece, I'd write down every dream I had. <laughs> and I started by dreaming dreaming prolifically. But as my trip went on, I dreamt less and less and, and the dreams became more and more absurd. So I just... <laughs> <laughs> I did write honestly wrote down everyone I had and a couple of them are quite embarrassing but I just thought you know <laughs> someone might I, I might stumble across a priest of Apollo who might tell me yeah, what yeah. they meant and you, you said you were struggling at some point to dream as well yeah that's yeah. right it just I was well also because I have to be honest about the kind of writer I am mm. and uh and I don't think there's any point in pretending that you know, I'm, I'm, I know everything about the nature of Greece or the, the natural world yeah. You know, I do stay up too late watching crap on Netflix or whatever. So yeah. that does get in the way of the dreams. <laughs> and uh, talk yeah. about the, yeah, the, the future, you said that quite a funny line in there about the age of iron they, they got to. Mm. And you said, oh, are we in the age of plastic? I quite like that line. Yes. Um, well, the Greeks believed, or Hesiod did, who wrote this down, that there were five ages. Um, we've had the Golden Age, the Silver Age, the age of bronze, bronze yeah. the age of heroes, which is when you know all the people we're familiar with were around, Theseus and Odysseus, uh, and then the Iron Age, which is what he was living in. But he was writing in 700 BC. Yes. So um, I was just thinking, well, actually, we've probably moved on from the age of iron now, and where are we now? We're probably yeah. seven or eight ages. We could well be in the age of plastic for all we know, or anything. But he wasn't very happy about being in the age of iron. He thought um, they were all fairly miserable there. Mm. So it's also that's that's another nice thing about writing about the myths and then also the the, the history when when myth becomes history that weird 
woolly time when yeah. you know suddenly the, the myths emerge and then you get actual people real people written about that's that's kind of intriguing moment for me as, as to what what was kind of history and what is myth okay and what was like some of your favorite parts in Greece that you probably visited that were obviously in relation to the myths but like was there any that surprised you Epidavros is Mm. beautiful epidavros is on the east coast of the peloponnese the peloponnese is the big island that sort of hangs down the whole of peloponnese i was there mostly because that's where most of the myths are set okay um there are many myths set elsewhere um but epidavros is lovely there's an ancient theater there which has got the world's most perfect acoustics and when i was there between i was in between lockdowns so i, I was traveling when i could was, this was 2020 in fact that i wrote oh, most, well yeah. i visited i didn't write visited most of it and uh, there were often just me and a couple of other people in these places. And, and that's a theatre that is huge, stone step theatre. It's beautiful by the coast, lovely coastline. Uh, Epirus, I've mentioned the northwest, yeah. is gorgeous, gorges and old stone bridges. It's famous for its tiny little spindly stone bridges that span mm. the gorges. And if you suffer from vertigo, it's a terrifying place to visit. <laughs> but it's. Uh, so many places. I went to Mycenae, which um, is just where Agamemnon lived and was killed. Very evocative. Ancient Olympia, where the Olympic Games were set. That's yeah. lovely. I mean, the list is immense. Athens itself is is an incredible place. Yeah, which has still got you know the Acropolis and so on, the Parthenon mm. still there, but is also a very modern and exciting city. Yeah, with phenomenal museums. So I mean, the list. I mean, Greece is just in every way cities, country the sea. I didn't get to the islands. I couldn't. So many islands there, isn't there? There's like loads. Well, there were so many, but I only got to one of them because of COVID. I was of course, getting, you know, yeah. in the book. And COVID yeah. keeps popping up. I try not to go on about it too much because um, <laughs> we're all bored of it. Yeah, uh, bored, I'm glad yeah. I didn't go on about it. But uh, yes, I couldn't get to the islands, which I've been to before. So mm. I didn't write about them this time. Next time, maybe do yeah. a follow-up. Because I... Yeah. I see Greece as the mainland, and then the islands oh, are so many. Now, where do you even start to travel? You don't want to go to the almost generic ones that everyone knows, like Santorini. I'm sure it's lovely there. I'd love to see it, but mm. it's quite generic that people do go there. But I'd love to see what are all the other islands like that we don't exactly. really hear much about. No, you don't. And there's some incredible islands. And, and if I'd been able to do you know, Ithaca, for example, where Odysseus mm. was from, I would have definitely had him that in there. Uh, my favorite island is Alonissos. Okay. which is beautiful yeah. and uh, I can it's there's a marine reserve around the coast it's a small little place and yeah. um, it's beautiful swimming around there okay that's a good little tip yeah okay <laughs> everyone go to Alanisos <laughs> <laughs> actually it reminds me I was going to say a bit earlier actually like about the whole over consumerism like I guess yes. I realise that my own podcast is like over tourism I don't know I, well, I, I, we had I'd this, be in um, favour of regulating tourism so I'm not against that, but no, I, a, know, I wonder if COVID tricky, had a reset of that. I'm not sure. I, if there's a reset, certainly. I, I had, um, well, we can talk about cruise ships if you like. But, oh, yeah, but cruise I, ships, In terms of, course, yeah. of a timeout, there's always that thing. Should I really tell people about my favourite bar in Rome? Yeah, yes. of course. Yes, you do. Yeah. You do yeah. tell people. You, you just, like my writing, I'm assuming that I could say, you know, go to this place, but I'm assuming it's not going to cause an actual stampede. <laughs> <laughs> Let's face it. So it's, it's a moral dilemma because I had, when I was talking to you about Emma Thompson coming on, mm. she had an island in Fiji that she, I think, lived on for three months doing a bit of um, restoration work with the coral reef. And I said, Oh, what's the island called? She went, No, I'm not going to tell you because I, I don't want people to go there. 
was like, dash, no, no, that's no, the no, only no. thing I'm not going to say. I thought, okay, no, fair enough. Okay. And she didn't enough. tell me offline, so I don't even know where that is. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> if you find so. out, tell me. I'm always in favour of sharing it, but it's true. These places are fragile. So, yes. Um, yeah. It's a tricky one. Very tricky. And to finish off the book, bit of note here, but locals, you said you meet some great locals. Like, what was your overall feeling of the Greeks? What, how, how are they thinking? What are they thinking? Um, love and tourists. I know, I know you mentioned that they happen to see a British tourist there, not the generic German tourist or French tourist that go there. Yes. Yeah. We're tricky in that year. In that era. Um, yeah. Because we had our lockdowns, but the French and Germans went later. They, had, they weren't so badly affected as us mm. at those moments. Uh, yeah, incredibly friendly. I, I, you know, the, the Greeks are unbelievably hospitable, mm-hmm. and I met some wonderful people in Athens. But also, I met you know random people who I just came across a shepherd in Arcadia who was, in fact, from Persepolis in Iran. <laughs> oh, oh yes, yeah, of course, yeah, uh, yeah. Wondered, he was yeah. incredibly friendly and lovely, yeah. and and then I arranged to meet a serious succession of people anyway who who were mostly activists. I yeah. met an amazing guy who um, is helping looking after the loggerhead turtles oh, uh, nice. in Greece. Yeah. Um, he's yeah. a lovely man, Yanis. Um, and then uh, I met these women who are fighting in the forests of Epirus to preserve them. Uh, the dancing women of Rasuls, they call themselves. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, they dress up in traditional costumes and sing what seem to be traditional songs. Uh, yeah. But they kind of ambush politicians and sing at them by dancing at them and sing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, maybe laugh that bit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, no, it was wonderful. And, and you know, the hotel owners, I think because of COVID, they were particularly pleased to see me, but also, mm. you know, endlessly patient and enthusiastic, I found. Okay. And very lastly on the book, where can people find your book? My book is most definitely on for sale online at the usual suspects. Yeah. But I hope in your local bookshops as well. If not, just pester the bookseller. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's and, also okay. available, I should say, uh, it's just out in paperback and yeah. hardback, but it's also available as an audio book, which I've ah, recorded. Did you read that yourself? I did read it myself. Oh, yes. good. Nice, yeah. nice. I don't like books yeah. that people, the author doesn't read. I'm like, it's a bit weird. I want the author to read it. A particular book like this where it's about my travels, I'd have felt very odd if someone else did. I was yes. quite happy for them to do it, but they insisted I did, and I thought, fine, fair enough. So I, yeah. was, I have full respect for people who do them. It's exhausting <laughs> reading and reading but uh, and having to pronounce everything correctly, but it's, um, I'm glad I did it. Yeah, okay, no worries. We're going to delve into some personal travel. Uh, I'm going to mm-hmm. ask you some quick-fire travel questions. Um, yes. basically some of your favourite parts around the world so I've got a, a list of questions here for you Hey yeah, just a quick one before we carry on with the travel questions I just want to say there are many ways to support this podcast you can buy me a coffee and help support the podcast with $5 or you can go to my merch store with the affiliate link with Tee Public, where there's plenty of merch available to buy such as t-shirts jumpers, hoodies and also some children's clothing thirdly, which is free you can also rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, or Good Pods. Also, you can find me on social media on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. Simply just search for Winging It Travel Podcast, and you'll find me displaying all my social media content for traveling, podcast, and other stuff. Thank you. It's travel question time. Out of all the countries that you travel to, 
what are your three favorite countries that you've traveled to? Wow. Uh, Japan made a huge impression on me. And that was when I went, when I was very young. Uh, France, I can't get enough of France, even though it's, you yeah. know, so close, but it's so varied. Yeah. And um, the States, actually, I used to love traveling. I haven't been to the States oh, yeah. for a while, but, you know, the, the variety in the States is, is also intriguing. The coasts okay. and then everything in between. It's got everything, it's, isn't it? Yeah, like, yeah. It, it is a country that has everything. It's it uh, does. quite unique. It, yeah, it's amazing. So Japan, France, the States. Yep, that's a good three. And what about three countries that you've not travelled to that's on next on your hit list? Really keen to go um, to Norway, Sweden, Finland, you know, up there. I think maybe a train journey around there. Oh, yeah, I haven't been dream. to Eastern Europe. Um, I'm keen to get to Poland, Romania. There's some forests in Poland and Romania that I'm really... I would like to see okay. with European bison in them. Um, and a third one, well, um, now I want to go to Fiji to the secret <laughs> island. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've been twice. And, yeah, I, I don't find a secret <laughs> island. Um, yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> I totally hear you on that. Okay. Do you drink coffee? Yes. Okay. Two questions here. If you could pick one city in the world to drink coffee and watch the world go by, where would you sit? And maybe a country's favourite coffee as well. Oh, okay. Uh, I would go and sit uh, in Rome and drink coffee. Piazza Navona, probably. I know it's a bit touristy, but it's... Uh, or Campo di Fiori. Yeah. Uh, I'd sit, sit down and drink Three. coffee. <laughs> I like Colombian coffee, yeah. yes, because it's mild. I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of very bitter mm. just coffee. Yeah, okay. And if you could pick one country in the world they've not lived in before, I think you mentioned this before, they'd like to live in, where would it yeah. be? Well, that is, yeah, that's slightly tricky, but I would probably go for France. I'd like to oh, go really? in France, yeah. yes. That is, that is the most visited country in the world, isn't it? Tourism wise. It is. Yeah. It is. And you there's a reason for that. Yeah. yeah, there is. I'd love to go like, along the little villages. Like, city's yes. great, don't get me wrong, but like, imagine like, just driving through those little French villages. Oh, a dream. It is amazing. And their waterways are incredible, the rivers and the canals mm. and everything. You know, it's great for cycling, great for walking. Yeah. So it's got a lot, of, lot going for it. Maybe not a car, yeah, maybe cycle. Yeah, in terms of nature. Okay. <laughs> what about a favourite beach that you've uh, experienced? Um, I've just come back from Cornwall and uh, I was sitting on Crackington Haven Beach on the on the north coast, um, okay. which is near Bude. It's a yeah. lovely beach, really nice. And, and it reminded me that when our children were smaller, we used to go to beaches all along there. There's one called Duck Pool. Okay. Which, um, I'm doing this thing where I shouldn't tell people about special beaches, but I'm sure it's well known already. <laughs> but Duckpool Beach is amazing. When the tide is out, you have to have a tide timetable, this being Britain. Okay. When the tide is in, it's a rock. It's nothing exciting. When the tide yeah. goes out, it's it's stunning. So okay. that north that north coast is lovely. But the weather's a bit rubbish. So if you could just move <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I need to experience Cornwall. I believe it's Newquay classic. Right. Um the worst part of Cornwall, my friend said. He's from Bodmin. Yeah. Got a few oh, friends from yes. Bude actually. They love it down there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It is lovely. I mean it gets packed July, August. Yeah. They do the whole Boxing Day swim, I think. They love it. Do they? Yeah, quite cold. It must be cold. Top three favourite cities in the world that you've been to? Rome, Istanbul, Los Angeles. LA? Wow, are you chucking that in there? Yes, well, I was just trying to think. I've, I've, Istanbul is, I know, half in Europe. Well, it's in Europe. <laughs> and, 
and uh, Rome's. I was thinking, well, actually, outside, but in fact, I love LA. I think it's partly because I wasn't expecting to like LA, but every time I've been, yeah. and I've you know been, I liked seven it seven times now. Yeah, yeah, really liked it. Yeah. Incredibly friendly. And um, I know people are a bit suspicious about friendliness, but I mm. think there's no reason to be. I've, every time I've been, it's just had a really good time. Yeah, can't mm. walk there, so you know it's yes. a this place. It's an absurd it, place in many ways. I mean, it's car cars have ruined it, but it, it's still something very exciting about it. I don't know why. I couldn't believe how big it was when we flew at night from Vancouver down. It's two hours, right? When, when you get round over the hills and then the lights start coming, I can I just could not believe how big it was. I was like, wow, yeah. this this place is huge, like beyond yes. arguably maybe Tokyo might rival it that I've been to, but other than that, London to an extent, but couldn't believe it. Yeah. Well, London's a great city, but I can't say that. So no, you can't I say mean, that. I couldn't choose it. But no. If I didn't live here, I'd choose it. Okay. <laughs> what about a favourite trek or walk? That, that, that might be interesting for you because you've probably done quite a lot. Yeah, I've, I'm very lucky. I went to New Zealand. My brother emigrated there, and uh, the Abel Tasman Dream. Trail is yeah, absolutely. Up there. I went on that, and it was mind blowing. Did you do the start to finish like five days? What it is like? Uh, the whole no, thing? we did two days of that. Two days, and, yeah. And um, that was. I wish I'd had time to do more. Small children with us, so it wasn't ah, of course, an option. Yeah. Um, so that's great, uh, but there's some great walking in Britain mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, I mean, the Britain is, and you really notice it when you're somewhere else. The footpaths of Britain are, are one of the wonders of the world. I mean, walking in the States is almost impossible because yeah. you're always, you know, people are very strange about they are, they? Australians yeah. are very possessive about That is true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's nerve wracking. Whereas, you know, you know where you are in Britain with the footpaths. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And you might have seen a few of these on your walks. What a favorite landmark can be nature or man made. Ah, okay. Um, standing stones every time even you know, walking in Brittany and France right, every time you come across those that's that's a very exciting thing Cornwall is full of them of course haven't walked in Ireland but I imagine that oh, would yeah. be a similar experience yeah um, but I love a, a moment where you've got a sort of man-made but very ancient thing that often you come across and in, in, I mean I've done walks in Cornwall where you come across standing stones and they're just there yeah, yeah. Lying yeah. around. It's not like there's, there's no car park or big hullabaloo. It's just just a standing stone. You think, wow, that's amazing. It is amazing. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Mm. Especially the, yeah, the really old man-made stuff. That is it's pretty impressive. Yeah. It can't be overlooked. Okay, what about uh, on your travels, your favourite cuisine that you've experienced? Well, uh, Californian cuisine is, hence I said LA, <laughs> is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I still remember the Japanese cuisine, even though I was in Tokyo age nine. <laughs> just, oh, wow. That, that just was <laughs> the ramen well, and the sushi. Yeah. I don't know how much sushi I would have eaten. I just, <laughs> yeah. probably it's just having soy sauce for the first time in my life because yeah. I didn't, didn't have it in Britain in the 70s or whatever it was. <laughs> so, yes, I mean, every country, one of the ways to get to know a country, even, you know, supposedly bad cuisines like the Czech or the German, I, I enjoy, I like. I like exploring a place through its food. Okay. Know, it's one of, one of the great pleasures, isn't it? I think food and travel. I mean, can you think of a better combo? I, I don't no. think I can. No. Um, there's a reason that Anthony Bourdain is so successful, right? And people love yes. him going to places well, and eating. any country. You think France, Italy, yeah. Spain, you, you, you want a Greek it's, salads. And it's I like, like even salad. like granular, isn't it? Like it's even the cities or the, or the regions of the country. You can go real like deep dive. Yeah. 
Yes. Endless content there, I think. Endless. Okay. Uh, what about a favourite lake? Ah, okay. That's, well, I, I probably put this in the wrong place, but um, I love a sort of alpine lake. Yeah, I know the Engadine Valley in Switzerland fairly well, and mm. uh, that has some beautiful lakes. The Samaritz around there, there's the frozen, the ones that get frozen, which you can walk on. So <laughs> happens here all the time. <laughs> uh, it's, probably not, it's probably not very exciting to you to do it, see a frozen, and then to walk on a frozen lake is really <laughs> is a thrill. Um, so yeah, I'd have to say those. I don't, I'm not a huge fan of. Um, swimming in lakes it's usually too cold I too think. cold yeah yeah, yeah. yeah i'm not a, a so-called wild swimmer <laughs> fair enough oh no there's about two or three months where they're not frozen but the rest of the year they are even in the even in the rockies they're still they're unfrozen in those times okay got two more questions for this little feature maybe a country that you travel to where you think is the best value for money oh that's interesting yes greece when i was there was incredibly good value for money and uh, turkey mm-hmm. is good value for money Pound is collapsing as we speak, so of course things. It is, of course, yeah. <laughs> My so, wage is going up every every week, I think, compared to the pound. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, good value for money. Greece is really good value for money. If you stay, you have to be slightly canny. And Athens is not so easy, but outside yes. of Athens, it's it's good. I think I'd imagine that actually. I think I've I've read it before. If you get into the depths of Greece, that can be like pretty cheap. Yeah. 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 Okay. And the last question that I normally ask all my guests is if there's someone listening right now who's maybe not sure about why to go traveling, maybe to Greece or to anywhere, what words of wisdom or advice would you give them to you know, make that leap and go? Mm. Traveling has changed my life and it's changed so many people's lives. That's the reason <laughs> to go. You go because your eyes will open. I mean, obviously, you know, you want to be surprised all the time by life. And it's at its simplest, this is going to sound ridiculous, but you're know, just getting out of the house is, yeah. is often yeah. is a Agreed. good thing. You know, go to a local <laughs> cafe. You know, it's that yeah. thing. I thank God I wasn't moping around here, but I've got out. I say this now because I, I work from home. So, uh, as many of us do now, do, um, yeah, time about it. So, just doing that. But then to take it the next step and just to be, you know, on, in a foreign train going somewhere is one of life's most thrilling things. Yeah, train rides are unra- underrated, aren't they? Yes, public transport where you're suddenly chatting to locals as well as other travelers is, is a great thing. Mm. Open okay. your mind. Go traveling. It's wonderful. Brilliant. Okay, Peter, thanks for coming on to the podcast. I really appreciate that. And thanks for it's, making time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my Winging It Travel podcast episode today. You can find me on Instagram at James Hammond Travel or Winging It Travel podcast. You can search for both. I release weekly clips of this podcast episode, as well as photos from the last eight to ten years of my travels. You can also follow me on TikTok, Facebook and Pinterest by searching Winging It Travel Podcast. I do release daily content to do with travel and the podcast throughout the week. Also check out my website jameshammond.org. There's content about myself, my travels and there's also a newsletter sign up as well as a contact form. Finally, please rate and review the podcast on Podchaser. This is my platform of choice. Alternatively, you can rate this on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts from. This really helps the podcast gain a bit of traction for the future in terms of guests and content. And I'm glad to see that you guys are listening out there, reviewing it and enjoying the content so far. Stay safe, stay humble, keep listening, keep traveling, and I'll catch you soon. Cheers, James.